Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and go to Luke 19. If there are kids in the room, Bergen kids that are going to be taught in the classroom, you guys can head out back to that class to be taught. And uh, the rest of us, we're going to be finishing up uh, Luke 19. Lots that I want to get through um, this morning. Um, a very exciting text because Jesus is at pretty much the climax of his ministry, the climax of uh, all that he will do in going to purchase men and women to himself through uh, his own broken body, shed blood, and resurrection, which ultimately will uh, rescue sinners from sin, from the enslavement of sin, and from uh, the intrinsic nature of sin that we all have by nature and choice. Um, so here's what you're going to see. If this is your, your first time, if you're just visiting with us, if you were brought by a friend, if you were pestered by a friend, however you landed here, we're thrilled that you are here. I want you to know that you're here uh, brought by your friend because they really want you to know this Jesus that we love to worship and love to serve and love to herald uh, his name because we really believe that he was God. We believe that he came and did what we could not do in living the perfectly obedient life for us on our behalf, that he died the death that was necessary for our debt and that he rose again in an act that we could not do to validate that, hey, he did this, and he can offer newness of life. And so um, this good gospel message that we love to preach, love to share, love to hear, uh, is not that we get to leave here as nicer people, as more moral people, but we get to leave as new people, as transformed people. And for those of us uh, that understand that, that's, that's the best news that you could ever have. And so um, we're going to go into Luke chapter 19 here, where uh, it's significant because the, the Jesus has been teaching the kingdom of God. So as he's been going, if you've been following with us for the last almost two years now, he has been laying before people as he entered his ministry in Luke chapter 3 that there is this thing called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is um, all that Jesus will do presently and all that he will do in the future. And so he is establishing for himself the kingdom that is rightly his. And there are people who will become citizens of that kingdom through trusting in the king of that kingdom who is Jesus. And so here what you're seeing is the kind of the commencement of his teaching of the kingdom of God. And now he's headed full force to fulfill all that he has been teaching and preaching. So um, this is significant here as he turns the corner in Luke chapter 19 uh, on as he's going to head to the cross where he will purchase for himself a bride through his uh, life, death, and resurrection. So we're going to pick right up in verse 28. Uh, last week he's, he gave the parable of the ten minas where he showed us that, hey, uh, eternity is coming but life now matters. The kingdom of God is here in a sense where all that we do, all that we uh, has been given by God for God. And so he's going to kind of... Uh, fly off the coattails of that into now um, demonstrating through his act of his uh, processional what that will be and what that will mean. Verse 28, here's what Luke writes. He says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying this colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They said, it on Jesus, set Jesus on it, and he rode alone, and as he rode alone, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, um, if you're ever wondering why this detail is, is in the, this part of the story, it's because Jesus is showing as he now heads to the cross, as he kind of commences his teaching and preaching on the kingdom of God and heads towards how he'll be the fulfillment of it, he's constantly showing, hey, I'm in charge of every bit of this, right? Even to the point of, hey, here's how we're going to enter in together. Um, there's going to be a cult. This is where you're going to find it. This is what the owner's going to say. This is what you say back to the owner. This how you bring it to me. So they just go and go, wow, Jesus really is omniscient. He really is God. Really, everything he said would happen. He's also going to fulfill the prophecy written hundreds of years before he was ever born out of Zechariah 9, 9, that, hey, you'll know your prince is coming when you see him seated on a colt. Now, the reason this is significant is because when kings rode in for war, they rode on horses. But when kings rode in to bring peace, they rode on colts. So Jesus is going to be coming in in a way that the people especially were not wanting him to come in if they're honest with their own selves. And so here you see him come in and you see them kind of spreading out the proverbial red carpet with their cloaks. This is largely significant. Cloaks were important. They were expensive. You normally only had one that you wore. So the fact that these people are taking off their one cloak, prized possession, laying it on the ground and showing submission to him, allegiance to him, love for him, worship for him. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of these people as they're welcoming their king, and this is a dramatic, dramatic entrance for Jesus. The reason it's dramatic is because um, he's, he's riding into Jerusalem making an unmistakable claim that he is this Messiah king. Now, here's why this is dramatic. Um, according to John 11, there's already a price for his head. 
So, so if you're gonna launch yourself in as the anointed king and you know there's a price for your head, unless you're God and know that God himself's gonna restrain the evil of man to accomplish his good purposes through the ultimate crucifixion right, of his son, if you, if you know all that's coming, you're not gonna go in on a cult just like the prophecy said with all the limelight focused at you. This is weird. This isn't like he should come. You're coming to come in obscurely and secretively and that's not what Jesus does. He comes right in and it is a blatant acknowledgement that he is king. It's a blatant acknowledgement that he is the anointed Messiah that is coming. And as he walks in in this deliberate claim to be king, he is coming as an outlaw. (laughs) He's coming as somebody who comes into the city with a price on his head. All eyes are fixed on him. And look what happens in verse 37 as he was drawing near, as he's getting closer to entrance of the gate, already down the way, all the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples. Now, now disciples, this isn't like his 12. This could be a couple hundred. This could be different types of people that were following him. This could have been thrill seekers. This could have been people genuinely with allegiance to him, believing he was God. As these, this multitude of disciples, they're all they're all uh, rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. That's key. We're going to get into that in a minute. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they're always there, right? The nagging aunts and uncles, they're always there. The Pharisees are still there, even as he's coming in in the crowd going, hey, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, these very stones would cry out. All right, so here's what's happening. Um, and, and here's the first thing you really got to understand to get the fullness of this picture. This crowd is not like your crowd heading to a Giants or Yankee game. Now listen, I, if you've ever been to a Giants or Yankee game, you know the crowds are massive. We went to, I went to a uh, Giants game recently, and there's this, if you park, you know, in the, in the, the nosebleeds, you got to walk like 17 miles, and you're more tired by the time you get there, you want to leave the game. Um, you actually get through, and you can look back and see just herds of people walking through this tunnel. Now, this is, we're talking millions of people, not just a couple hundred thousand not even just a couple thousand, we're talking a massive, massive crowd that is lining up because here's a couple things going on. One is, um, here's what you have going on at this point. You have this entourage that's one, joining Jesus, right? Now, as Jesus preaches, teaches, heals, as he's trekking up through Jericho, remember he healed the blind man in between that here at Bethany. We don't get recordings from Luke, but that's actually when he goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. You bet that hit like electricity through Jerusalem. This guy can raise the dead back to life. He is forming an entourage. There are are hundreds of thousands of people joining Jesus. Now, at the same time, it's Passover, okay? And because that's significant, uh, historically, there's like 257,000 lambs that were killed, one lamb per every like 10 people. You do the math, you're near 2 million, so, so you've got this entourage with Jesus from the south, these people coming, with for, coming through the east gate for the Passover, a couple million all colliding together, getting ready to welcome Jesus as their king and participate in the Passover. I mean, phenomenal, tremendous, weighty moment as the ransomer, the Passover land himself is entering in. You've got all these people coming together and they're coming to welcome Jesus. So that's what you've got to picture in your head here. Picture a massive, massive crowd. That's why John says it was a large crowd. He still doesn't do it justice. John 12's like, yeah, it was really big. It was massive, bigger than most what any of us have ever seen, and Jesus is going to walk right into this thing on a cult as the anointed Messiah King, and as he comes, he's not the Messiah King that they wanted. Now, we've been covering this throughout the Gospel of Luke, Um, We've been looking at this repeatedly. At this point in history, they're so oppressed by the Roman Empire that they're looking for a full-scale rebellion against Rome, but they want it on a supernatural level. Like, they want it on the level of what they're seeing Jesus do. So they're seeing Jesus give sight to the blind. They're seeing Jesus raise back to life that which was dead. So they're going, man, we want this full-scale opposition to Rome. We want it on a supernatural level. Jesus has done it. Do you see the guy that he healed in Jericho? Do you see the guy he healed in Bethany? Hey, this is the type of full-scale supernatural rebellion that we need against a Roman garrison, and Jesus is just the guy to do it. So he is our political hero. And we know that that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to be their political hero. Very applicable for us in this day, right? Right, he came to rescue us from sin. He came to make all things new. He came that he would make disciples of his name so that disciple making would penetrate cultures and not start at government down, but start at the people of God out. And you, you see this throughout the book of 
Luke. And so here, as Jesus is entering, he's not the Messiah they wanted, and he starts this processional towards the city, and you can, you can feel the tension rising here. I mean, all of this in Luke has been building up to this point. Everything has been just bubbling and building. You can feel the tension. He's about to make his grand entrance. You have God in the flesh. You have miraculous virgin birth. You have him performing miracles. You have him giving sight to the blind, raising the dead to life. You have him giving grace to the outcast and the lonely. You have him humbling the self-righteous, going after the religious elite. You have him calming the storms and waves. He has authority over the cosmos. He is finally here. And what's he entering in on but a cult? Where's the horse? I mean, this is the Messiah King. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Why is he not on a horse? Why is he on a colt? Because he came to be killed, not to kill. He came to bring peace and not to bring war. He came to humble himself as a ransom for many. Profound, it's where heaven meets earth. There's gonna be peace with God. Now what's amazing is you got the crowd going, hey, peace on earth, right? They're not talking about the peace that we're going to have with God as being an enemy of God, becoming a friend of God. They're going, hey, there's going to be peace in our lives because the oppression will be lifted from Rome and we'll be free. And Jesus is showing and demonstrating, no, I came for something very, very different. I came as a king of love and peace. And as Jesus approaches the city and you got close to two million people screaming, cheering, some clapping, some ignoring It says they did this, why? Because of the mighty works they saw him do. This is a profound, this triggers a profound understanding of these people, and we've been seeing it throughout Luke. Um, They're not really interested in Jesus. At the end of the day, I mean, they're not really chasing Jesus. Their pursuit is not really Jesus. They're not really desiring allegiance under Jesus. What they really want is another thrill. They want him to be a magic man. They want him to do some crazy things that allow them to get what they want. Jesus is a means to something else. And so here you see them as they line up. They're thrill seekers. Because these are, a lot of these people in the crowd are who will later scream, crucify Jesus. They're fickle followers, not faithful followers. And here's the reason why. They really want Jesus to fix their external problems. They don't want him to get at their internal problems. Now, I've said this over and over. You've got Jesus Christ. You've got the God of the Bible who constantly is going to go after your internal issues. He's going to constantly go after your heart. Now, if you and I are honest, we don't want him going after our heart. We want him to go after external stuff because we can somehow modify that and protect that, right? So, so just, Jesus, give me something to do. Let me attend more, be more faithful, pray harder, read more uh, seriously. Help me be more about social justice, this and that. Okay, then that will win favor when God goes, hold on. Okay, let me just get inside you for a minute. You're like, no, don't go there. He's like, no, that's where I'm going to go because that's the only place that transformation is had. That's the only place that fullness of life is found. And let me get into the deepest parts of your soul and rewire what's not rewired. And yet we don't want that. We want them just to keep us externally okay. These people wanted external change, not internal transformation. They did not want Jesus to do those things. They wanted him to do miracles, be a magic man, a conquering hero, free us from the external issues of Roman oppression. And Jesus consistently says, I'm here to fix what's damning you. I'm here to fix what the wrath of God is over. And that's the sin, nature, sin choice that dwells inside your soul. And if you don't fix that, it doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you prepare for, doesn't matter what you change, doesn't matter what you alter. That's all the imageries of all of Jesus' healings. Now, this is the same message of culture today, right? You've got an external problem, not an internal problem, right? I mean, what sells? I mean, what are we taught? What are we discipled by? You ever thought about that? I mean, almost everything in culture is, you've got an external issue, so let's fix this. Let's change this. Let's, this is why the world reads all the books and magazines we do. Fix my external. Show me how to be more successful. Show me how to be more beautiful. Show me how to have a better sex life. Show me how to do this. Show me how to make much of me. Show me how to be a CEO. Show me how to go from you know, better to best. Show me all these different things, right? Don't touch me inside. Just let's do the outside work. And so we religiously, as the world religiously lays it before us and goes, hey, here's how you look better, this Botox, this surgical enhancement, this diet, this pill, this whatever. Let's just go after it thinking that's our savior. right? That's someone going to fix all the problems. Yet when you find that and God is not God, there's some level of disappointment in your life all the time. Because you're chasing what God has made and not the maker of the one who made those things. And so you're constantly terminating in this thing that was never meant to hold up under the weight of God. And it can't be a functional savior for you. And so we do the same thing these people do. Just fix me externally. 
take care of that need and then I'm great. Don't touch my internal issue. And yet here Jesus is showing us that that's why he came. And then in the middle of all this, <laughs> the Pharisees are like, man, you gotta, you gotta rebuke your boys. They're calling you God. You know, this is what every false system does. It immediately goes after the deity or humanity of Jesus Christ. It's what every false system does. So as he says, hey, um, you gotta rebuke your boys. They're calling you God, even though Jesus has repeatedly been calling himself God. I always find it so fascinating when I sit down with people like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He repeatedly claims to be God over and over and over again. So here he says, as an appeal and claim to be God, okay, well, I'll tell them to shut up, but even the rock's gonna say I'm God, so it's a wash. What do, you, what, do you, what do you really want? This is echoing Romans 8, right, where even creation, himself, creation itself was made to bring glory to God. So at the end, it's groaning right now with frustration because it wants to fully bring glory to God and being the, the made things of the maker. So one day that will happen, but right now there's groanings, there's frustrations to lick and fully worship the God of the Bible in the new Jerusalem and new heavens and new earth. So he says, okay, I can tell them to shut up, but then even creation's gonna scream out that I'm God. I mean, the common denominator, what the Pharisees are doing here is the common denominator of every false system, right? Really, it comes down to your understanding of who Jesus is, your Christology, right? I mean, one thing they'll, they'll always do is either attack his deity or his humanity, right? Either he was just a man and he wasn't God, or he wasn't a man and he was just a spirit, and even though there was Gnosticism happening a lot during this time, which is Jesus was just a spirit, he wasn't really a man, the Pharisees constantly are rebuking his deity, believing he's not really God. And Jesus constantly will show him, no, he really is God. So we believe that the human Jesus and the divine Christ are one and the same. And this is the only way he can accomplish for us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has to be both. Because if he's not God, he can't absorb wrath rightly. He can't give you the righteousness necessary. He can't accomplish any of those things. And if he's not human, he can't identify with you. He can't absorb your sin. He cannot be the high priest that sympathizes with every weakness. You have to have the humanity and divinity of Jesus in those things. And that's why Jesus is the litmus test in the reality for everyone, is he not? I always say, don't start at creation. Don't start at the end. Start with Jesus and work your way out. You have got to deal with Jesus, his resurrection, his ministry, his life. If you don't deal with that, it does not matter what you do with all these fringe areas. Because once you have Jesus as God or not God, then you've got, okay, what did Jesus say about all these historical things? What did he say about creation? What did he say about Adam and Eve? What did he say about the flood? What does he say in his ministry? What does he say about heaven, hell, judgment, sin? What does he say about those things? And then you can either trust him or not trust him. But Jesus is the litmus test for everyone, right? I mean, nowadays, you can talk about God all you want. The minute you mention Jesus, you have four heads and five eyes, right? Is this not true? I'll get in so many conversations of God, spirituality, and then as soon as Jesus enters in to the conversation, it's like, and even some people go, yeah, 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 Jesus, great guy. As soon as you mention he was God, forget it. Oh, well, that's where we differ. That's, yeah, that's very, yeah, no, 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 there's no evidence, proof. No, he's not really God. He's like just some, you know, nice guy, moral teacher, gives good wisdom. But this is the divergence. So here we have the litmus test of people still happening back now with these Pharisees. That's why you hear a lot of people say, um, well, you know, all these other religions, I mean, I know that they don't know Jesus, so they're trying their best to know God through the best knowledge that they have. So Muslims, I mean, they have Allah, but I mean, that's the closest thing they have to Jesus or God, so that's good. Are these people in other tribes who don't know Jesus at all or don't have access to scripture, access to Bibles, like, so they just kind of look at creation, they somehow uh, fabricate who Jesus might be, and then uh, in some way, whatever that model is, whatever that mode is, regardless of whether it's biblical or not, regardless of the, according to the true Jesus Christ, and that's just their God, and they can worship that. Well, according to 1 John 2 and many other places, you cannot know God without Jesus. You cannot have access to God without access to Christ, who is your mediator. So Jesus is necessary. 
I mean, Jesus Christ, who we're looking at, I mean, in this gospel is necessary. That's why I've been saying, you have got to read this gospel, see this gospel, sit under this gospel in a way where you're going, I am looking into the God-man, Jesus Christ, and you have to do something with him. You can't leave here indifferent. You can't leave here just curious. You eventually have to come to a place where you say, he is God or he's not God. He has his claims or he doesn't have his claims, and then you have to deal with it in your soul and do the hard work, because otherwise you're just living an illusion, and so that's why we love gathering under this book that we've done for the last couple of years and going, okay, let's look at this Jesus. Let's examine who he is. Let's see his life and teachings and what he says and if he can hold up with his own self and claims, which he absolutely does. And we need this Jesus because this is the Jesus we must proclaim because without him, we cannot know God. So look at what this Jesus who is God does in verse 41, profound. When he drew near and saw the city, you're gonna see, every time you see Jesus, you see God. When you wonder what the character of God's like, you look at Jesus. Colossians will tell you that. So verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. While everyone is rejoicing, Jesus is weeping. While everyone is seemingly happy, Jesus is deeply saddened. Now, a lot of commentators, I love it, will use this language of this is the funeral before the wedding. That Jesus must die before he gives life and rescues a bride. That's really what you're seeing here is Jesus is weeping, preparing for his funeral. Now, um, to give us a, a cool picture of this, when I, was in, when I took my trip to Israel, one of my favorite things was standing on the Mount of Olives and looking down towards this east gate. I have a picture that I wanted you guys to see of it, and this is kind of the, um, the Dome of Rock, that's the Temple Mount, and then right in front of it, right below it, you'll see the east gate, which is the Ottomans actually sealed up in 1540, but you can see how uh, there's a cemetery in front of it. And I wanna tell you a unique story uh, before I get into this text. As, as you're standing on the Mount of Olives, this is kind of the view that you're looking at as you look over the city. And, um, and the Ottomans come in and everybody knows the prophecies of this Jewish Messiah that will come and rescue a people for himself. And they know that he will likely, it says in Zechariah, after he ascends and splits the Mount of Olives in half, he'll enter through the east. So most people believe even as Jesus is walking through this east gate in his processional, he's foreshadowing his future return where he'll walk through the same gate. So you'll notice it's sealed up and you'll notice there's a cemetery in front of it. Well, um, according to lots of traditions, holy men, priests, and the like, uh, couldn't walk over cemeteries. So the Ottomans thought in 1540, hey, let's seal up the gate, let's put a cemetery in front just in case the predictions are true to prevent Jesus from walking into the city and doing what he said. Okay, I'm not a scientist, but let me tell you something. Once he splits the mountain in half, I don't think he's going to have a problem walking over a cemetery, right? Like, I don't think the gate is going to be an issue. Like, I mean, once the Mount of Olives separates from east to west, I don't think he's going to go, oh, darn, there's a cemetery. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I, oh, there's a brick mortar. I don't know how I'm going to get through that wall. He'll just probably go through like he did, you know, after he resurrected on the road to Emmaus. He'll just walk through the wall. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, you've got these crazy, crazy people constantly trying to prevent claims and things about Jesus to happen. I think that what that shows you is deep down in the human heart, there is a conviction that maybe this is true, maybe this is right. Why would you go to the lengths to do something like that if you don't believe it? Anyway, so here, this is, the, this is the view that you have of looking down, and we see Jesus begin to weep over this city. Now picture, though, you've got mobs, you've got structures, you've got people funneling in that gate, funneling in the city, and he looks over the city and starts weeping going, oh, how I wish you would turn to me. Oh, how I wish you would come to me as king. Oh, how I wish you would not blind your eyes to me being God. Profound. As you think about Jesus seeing all of these things, oh, how I wish you would know what was about to be fulfilled to me. Oh, how I wish you knew that I'm about to make a once for all sacrifice for sin. Will you not take me as your king? That's what Jesus is saying. And these tears of Jesus are the tears of God. 
as he sees the needless confusion and suffering and pain amidst a people that will gladly step into rebellion instead of submission to him as king. And he knows it's coming. Now here's what you're also seeing in this text here as this kind of in this picture is you're actually seeing God's profound patience and profound initiating love. Every time I read this text, I don't know about you, it, it's profound to me that he stops on his way down, looks over the city, is grieved and starts to weep, full well knowing the men and women who are awaiting him that will crucify him, drive nails through his feet, thorns into his brow, whip his back, pull flesh off of it, spit at him, mock him, jeer at him. You know why that's profound? It's God chasing us down in our sin out of his love. He sees you in your rebellion. He sees you in your sin. He sees you in the bloom of his name. He doesn't wait for you to turn to him and seek him. He says, no, I'm initiating. I'm going in. I'm going to the cross. I'm coming after you to save you. This is the story of the Bible. I'm going to send prophets. I'm going to send messengers. Now I'm going to send my son, right? And he comes in and goes to the crucified, risen self. He goes to do all this, accomplish all this amidst the group of people who he knows belittle him, who knows mock him. He does not wait for you to start attending church before he seeks you out. He does not wait to become more moral before you can turn him to salvation. He goes to you in your sin. This is one of the best gifts of news we could ever hear. Like some of you are going, I don't know, I think the God of the Bible is somebody who kind of waits for me to kind of clean up, have some better version, have some better life, have some better understanding of the things of God before he rescues me. No, the God of the Bible says, I see you in your sin, wandering from me, not seeking me, and that's when I'm going to die for you. That's when I'm going after you. I mean, that pulls you in by the back of your shirt. In your running, in your rebellion, the Bible will explicitly and clearly show you that that is when Christ decided to die for you and get his name belittled for you and get his skin and neck and hair and teeth and head and everything tortured for you so that you might find reconciliation with him. That is so amazing that the God of the Bible sits on top of this mountain, looks over, sees millions of people who reject his name and says, I'm coming in. I'm not gonna wait for you to decide you want me. I'm still gonna come and accomplish and do all that I promised I would do because it's all been building up to this moment. And he goes in and he weeps. And part of his grievance is the future destruction of the temple. I love it, he just prophesies it. For historical record, in 70 AD, that's like 40 years after this, Rome's gonna come in and just lay the place to, to shreds. Barricades him in, hems him in, just destroys the city. And he's going, you didn't even know the time of my visitation. You didn't even know that God was among you, yet you shut your eyes. I mean, how many people has Jesus walked and they go, no, he's not God. I came to really bring peace. How How many of you did not know that peace with God could be had in me? I'm right in front of you. And yet... They blinded their eyes. Now, here's what's amazing. He weeps just like Jeremiah weeped over the city, just like Nehemiah weeped over the city, just like Paul weeped over all of those in the line of Abraham who would not trust in Jesus as a Messiah because they had been blinded to who he was as God. So Jesus is just in the great succession of prophets, the perfect prophet, the only prophet that comes and accomplishes what none other ones could do. And he says, in his weeping and in his burden, I'm here And even though Jesus knows the temple will be destroyed, one of the first things he does is he goes to purify it. (laughs) Verse 45. And he entered the temple. This is amazing to me. Amazing. There's so many things Jesus could do when 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 he enters into the processional, right? He goes right to the temple. Even with the cross, days in view, he's still preaching and teaching. And it says that he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus gets into town. 
They got cloaks laid down. You know, many other texts and pastors have the palm branches. They're screaming out, Hosanna, your savior. More meaning, hey, savior, save us from Rome, not save us from sin, right? There's a lot of imagery, a lot of, you know, different types of, of people, curious thrill seekers, genuine followers, those who don't really know what to do with it but want to join the party. Lots of interesting things happening. And Jesus goes, hey, I'm going to go to my house. I'm going to go to my turf. I'm going to go to the temple. And I'm going to keep preaching because I believe in that so much in the mission of God before I go and become all the things that I am preaching about. And he enters into this thing, and when he arrives, it, turned, it had turned into a business enterprise. It, it was not the place that God had made the temple to be, because here's what's happening. Um, if you read the Old Testament, God, God basically lays out that he wanted the temple, a place that was sacred, that was holy, a place that you could commune with God and be reconciled to God. That's, that's a basic point of the temple. So um, house of prayer just means communing with him. It's not just head bowed, eyes closed. It's singing, it's exaltation, it's confessing, it's sacrifice. This is a place where we, we declare God is holy, we make much of his name, and here you guys are just extorting the poor. This is now turned into a place for cons. This is turned into a place where it's a get-rich-quick scheme. The point of the temple was never to be a business venture, but a place to exalt God. And so here's what is going on so you understand it. There are varying... Um, courts in the temple. So the Holy of Holies, that's where the presence of God was. That's where heaven met earth. That's where people would come to give their sacrifices to make sacrifice for their sin, right? Uh, Foreshadowing that Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice to perfectly atone once for all for sin. As you walk towards the the temple mount, the Holy of Holies, there were different courts. So the first immediate court was like the high priest. They were the ones who um, could go, had to like direct access, right? Then you had another series of courts and that was like where other priests could go. And then you had another series of courts, and that's where the Jewish people could go. Then he had another series of courts, that's where like women and children could go, and then so forth. And then the last court is but the Gentile court, right? The filthy, the lowly, the outcast, the and that's where the business would happen. But here's what's going on. A lot of the poor people, as they're coming up you know, to, to make sacrifice, they didn't have any animals, they didn't have livestock, and so they would have to purchase one there at the temple. So they would have people selling these animals in the outer court of the Gentile court. But here's what the high priests were doing. The men who were supposed to help people meet with God and be reconciled to God, what they were doing was they were charging 10 times the normal amount for someone to purchase an animal and tax on top of it. And guess who got the overhead? The high priests. They were socking away the cash. You want to talk about something that would nauseate Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? place that's holy, sacred, about the fame of his name, about coming to worship God, about helping the poor, not extorting the poor. And here these people are trying to get rich quick, kind of con people, trying to extort those who were unfortunate. This angered Jesus Christ rightly. Now, some of you, I've even talked to people, you jump on this text and go, man, well, see, I can get angry because Jesus got angry. No, you don't get angry over the things that are right and just. You get angry because someone mocked your name. Well, that's not something right to be upset about and aggressive about. It's when they mock and belittle the name of Jesus Christ and injustice and sin, yes, that's when we have a right to get angry. That's when we have a right to be against those things. And here you see Jesus, he is furious because there is belittling of the glory and name and renown of God. And these people are using what was meant for the glory of God to be a get-rich-quick get scheme in a business venture where they're extorting men and women who cannot afford certain things. So he walks into this place, and Jesus shows up furious saying, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You know... This is one of the reasons I believe people oppose Jesus and want him dead. It's not always religious. Some of it's religious, but other times it's just financial. Other times it's just political. I think this is like a whole other sermon. Why do you really oppose Jesus and not want Jesus? Do you really not want to have lordship over your finances? Do you really not want him to have lordship over your decisions? Is it really that you don't believe he is God and that he was man? What is it that's really preventing you from entering into glad submission to Jesus Christ? And here we see Jesus amidst all of this. He's not a coward. He plants himself right in the temple and keeps preaching and teaching. He plants himself right there so people can meet God and learn about God. The whole reason the temple existed. So he purifies it, he cleans it out, then he gets up in the pulpit and man, I'd love to hear that sermon. I mean, wouldn't you love to hear that sermon? 
As soon as he throws out the den of robbers, I mean, understand, Jesus, as he comes in and calls home turf, every time I come across this text, I'm going, okay, if he's not God, how does he shut this whole operation down with no resistance, no fight, no rebuke? We're not talking three or four people. We're talking thousands. It's Passover, and he comes in in one swoop and goes, hey, all you guys get out, and they run out with their tail between their legs. I mean, how do you do that if you don't have divine authority? I mean, how do you do that if there's no, some sense of trembling in your soul? I mean, everybody gets out, shuts the whole thing down, gets up and starts preaching and teaching. Going, this is not what it's supposed to be. This is God flexing his glory in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He loves to do it. He is not weak. Our God is not weak. I feel like we have just so perverted what Jesus Christ even looks like a fairy who floats around and gives you all your presents and makes you happy permanently and there's a lot of self-help and guru in him and you're always leaving floating on a cloud. He's never angry. He's never aggressive towards his holiness and his, and his worship. He's always just suggesting things, never demanding anything. Yet we see that the Jesus of the Bible demands things because he knows in his great design, that that always leads to ever-increasing joy in you and ever-increasing glory to God himself. So, So as you pursue him, as you follow him, as you turn from sin and turn to him and the glory that is in his person and work, you find more joy in being freed from the enslavement of that cannot satisfy your soul, and he gets greater applause because he's the one who's the author and founder of it. And so here we see Jesus preaching and teaching pushing out those who are defaming his name. And here's what's so great about Jesus. He's absolutely kind and loving, yet absolutely truthful. You see that consistently in his life and ministry. If you love God, you're gonna hate sin. If you love people, you're going to hate injustice. And here we see Jesus hate that the glory of God is being belittled. We see him hate that the holiness of God is being toyed with, is being trotted upon. That's why love gets violent. Like if you really love something, if you have true love about it, it gets violent, right? A lot of us say we love lots of things. You don't really love it. That's just the only word you have in your vocabulary for that thing. But really, if it breaks or goes down, you don't really care. You walk away, get a new one. You didn't love that thing. You didn't love your house. You didn't love your car. Hate this thing. Oh, it broke, blah, blah, blah. But if you really love that thing, then when something opposes that or damages that, there's violence. There's a good holy violence about you, right? We hate prostitution. We hate sex trafficking, right? We hate abortion. We hate injustice. We hate sin. We are absolutely aggressively opposed to those things because we love God, because we love Jesus Christ. Um, Those of you that are married, you, you love your spouse, hopefully in a way that is biblical and right so that if something comes against your spouse, you bet there's aggression. Your kids, you love your kids. When there's something against your kids, you bet there's aggression. Because you love them. So Jesus is demonstrating here that he absolutely loves God, loves the glory of God. And I love this at the end here. The religious couldn't do anything yet because people couldn't stop listening to his perfect teaching, his perfect preaching. (laughs) Here's what I want to lovingly lay before you. A lot of these people that are hanging on his every word, as soon as the popularity of Jesus dwindles and he goes before Pilate and he gets sentenced to the cross, you see them just join everyone else in jeering, mocking, and walking away. Mere listening does not equal belief. Some of you come and you just listen. And look, praise God you're here, but mere listening does not equal belief. Like, like what, what God's hope for you is, is that you would hear the word of God and like the prophet Ezekiel gets up and goes, hey, the word of God has gone out, you must do something now. So, so, so the, the conversion happens when we actually hear the truth laid before us, our heart responds in obedience, responds in repentance, we turn and we walk in more joyful, glad submission to the king under his great kingship and great care. Some of us, Lynn, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm so afraid for you because all you do is come and listen and leave. There's no change, there's no transformation, there's no difference, there's no submission to his allegiance. It's just, man, I love coming because it's just so cool. I love hearing good thoughts and cute sentences and interesting wisdom. And man, that all means nothing if you leave here unchanged. 
It needs to become personal. It needs to be you face to face with the Jesus who is speaking. And so we see here that we must not just come week after week and just listen, but do something with what we hear. This is what James 1 says. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Man, do something. Right? I said last week, that's why, like James says, it's like a mirror. A mirror exposes, reveals what's really there. Right? So that, that's why I love reading the Bible, because the Bible is the only thing that actually perfectly reads me. I don't know about you, if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, man, you can't get into the Bible without it eventually poking you in such a way that either shut it, put it on your bench, or pick it up and keep reading and going, God, okay, reveal, expose me. Right? Those are the only two things you can do. Because it readily reads your heart, it readily exposes what's really there, and yet when it exposes, it's to heal, not to condemn. It's to bring hope and not despair. Because you're finding the one remedy for all the things that it is revealing in your soul. Profound, profound things. I want to close this out with just three different questions we see from the characters of this text. Um, Because what you're seeing behind the shadows here is Jesus calling us to his kingship through his weeping and through his warning. So the first question I just want to ask is maybe some of us, just like these people, accept Jesus with the appearance of him being king, but he's not really. Um. Maybe some of you, you don't really want him as king. You don't really want him as your authority. You don't really want him as your allegiance. What you really want is him as your co-pilot who just offers suggestions. Okay, Jesus, I'll sit here. I'm available for your suggestions on heaven, hell, sin, salvation, wrath, but an eternity, but man, I'll let you know when it's my turn. And then I'll let you know when it's your turn. And then I'll let you know. I'll judge you based upon the things that you said, and I'll let you know when you know, we kind of come to a good agreement. And yeah, I'll take the, the theories and the, the, the claims that you have, and then I'll take it with my own finite wisdom, even though you made my brain that's thinking about this wisdom that you think through and made and fabricated and formed, right? But, but hey, let, let's just let's put you in the appropriate place. Let's let you sit shotgun in my car. You're not touching the wheel. You're not driving. You're not in authority. I'm not getting in the back seat. Actually, get in the trunk. And then every time I have an issue, why don't you get out and help me? Offer me suggestions. Jesus Christ is not a God who offers suggestions. He's a God because he exists in the truest form of perfection and holiness is the only one who can make demands because he knows those demands will free your soul. He knows those demands will lead to fullness of life. He knows those demands will lead you to liberation from your enslavement to sin. And so Jesus Christ here may not be your king. This morning, is he your king? And um, if he were to enter this room, would you receive him as king of your marriage? Does he call the shots in your marriage? Um, How you're called to love your wife is life, Christ loves the church, and how you're supposed to love and submit to your husband as Jesus does to his father. Do Do you believe that? Is he king of your finances, of your wallet? Is he the one who makes decisions in the family? Um, Is he king of your decision-making? What decides relationships? What decides decides wisdom? What decides what I will do and what I will not do? What decides what sin I will love and enjoy and what sin I won't love and enjoy? There should be none, (laughs) right? But that's how we walk through this. So instead of Jesus demanding and claiming those things, we say, well, this sin's okay and this sin's not okay. Well, sin is sin. Right? Um, is he king of your life, king of your soul, king of your home? These are hard questions, but as Jesus comes in, he deliberately says, I must be king. Because Jesus' concern is not just fixing you externally, it's fixing you internally. Now, historically, in all my few years of pastoring, of counseling, of meeting, I'm telling you, historically, without fail, every time that God is not God, Jesus is not king over any of these areas, there is disappointment at some level. It's just without fail. Because you're immediately placing something as a functional savior that cannot be the functional savior. So you view your marriage, you view your money, you view your decisions, you view them all through the lens of you and Jesus are equal. You both decide on things. You both kind of make agreements. You both kind of come to some sort of contract that says, you sign on the dotted line. If I like it, I'll sign on my dotted line, and then we'll live this awesome life together. We both get what we want. (laughs) And then there's constant disappointment, and you get angry, you get upset, you get volatile, and you don't know why. Well, it's because God is not God. King is not king. Jesus is not Lord. 
Because when he is, here's the wonderful thing. All of a sudden, you start walking in freedom. All of a sudden, you start walking in fullness of life. You're the one putting the cap on your life. By refusing to submit to the only perfect Savior, the only perfect God, the only perfect person who can satisfy, fulfill, lead in the deepest fullness of life, you say, no, this thing will, so that will play the role of God, that will be my idol, that'll be what I worship, and as you pursue that thing over and above God, you consistently find disappointment and failure. So in marriage, I mean, we've said this all the time, when you view that your spouse is your king, well, let me let you know, they can't hold up under that. If Jesus is, it gives you the freedom to enjoy your marriage, walk in marriage, and wrestle in your marriage in a way that glorifies God, brings ever-increasing joy, because ultimately your joy is tied to him and not your wife or husband. If, if you have it in your kids, if you have it in your job, if you have it in how you spend things, how you organize your life, eventually, if Jesus isn't calling the shots, you're going to really be chasing that thing for fulfillment, not Jesus. And I'm telling you, when you wire it according to how he's called you to wire it, there is freedom, there is everlasting joy. I'm not saying it's, it's easy, I'm not saying it's not hard, I'm not saying there's not wrestling in your soul, but I'm telling you, you continue to push through the brick wall. Others of you, is he calling you to himself through his weeping? Some of you are broken over shame. You've got past regrets fills your journal. You feel like Jesus could not want you, Jesus does not love you. You need to do something before Jesus could possibly die for you, before he could possibly atone for you, before he could possibly forgive you. You need to see the weeping love of Jesus who says there's no condemnation for you if you take my ransom. I'm dying for you in that state. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. He's got warm, strong love. Some of you need to hear that Romans 2, he says, I thought it was the kindness of God, the patience of God that would lead you to repentance. Some of you, your character of God is way out of whack. You don't see him as a good, loving father who only has it best for you, love for you, goodness for you. You see him as one who wants to take and refuse and belittle. It's like whatever you grew up in your house. It's like whatever you grew up in the past. Walk on eggshells. Don't talk wrongly. Jesus is a God that says, hey, I am coming after you with my initiating love. Let that blow your mind. Let the kindness that I show you call you to myself. Some of you need to hear this glad love of Jesus. He doesn't want to see you in destruction, in decay, in delusion with your sin. Um, others of us, maybe he's calling you to himself through his warning. He's coming into the temple. You're trotting my holiness. You're playing around with sin. You know, every once in a while, it's really good to get woken up by God. It really is. I've said this before. You can look at just do a word study on wrath. In the Bible, you're going to see passive and active wrath. Those are the only two kinds you really see. Active is fire from heaven, blowing up cities, Nebuchadnezzar is an animal. That's what you're going to see. Passive is much more frightening. You see it a lot. Okay, go ahead. You want that instead? Chase it. Okay, I'm going to keep calling you, keep knocking, keep. You want that? Chase it. Okay, eventually to where he says, fine, just go have it. All the way to your damnation. He doesn't warn you. He just says, fine, if that's what you want, go have it. Go get it. To me, I would much rather God wake me up with his loving, strong warning. I would love for him to intervene in spaces and go, hey, buddy, um, that flirtation is going to ruin your marriage. Hey, that, that website's gonna pervert your mind and soul. Hey, that greed's gonna lead to exhaustion. Hey, if you're not careful, you're gonna ruin this, damage this, blow up this. Hey, you can have me now. Some of you, God is consistently doing that. You're consistently turning a deaf ear to his glad, loving, strong warning. Some of you are just playing with sin. You're just playing around with it. It's not a big deal. It's not going to destroy. You're buying the lie. It's not really going to lead. No, it leads to death now and death in the life to come. And he'll constantly say, don't be deluded. Don't be, you know, fall into that decay. Don't be, uh, you know, misinformed by this. This is real. This is destructive. This is bad. This is not just something to play with like a toy. So when Jesus makes claims, he makes claims to grab us to himself. Some of you guys, man, you believe in Jesus like you believe in Abraham Lincoln. He's just a man. He's a guy you know, not a, a, a God to submit to and walk in joyful, glad 
submission to and obey and walk and follow who you believe leads to deepest, profound meaning of life, who actually is the remedy for your sin. You just want to believe in him as someone who exists, as someone who does things. I don't know which one of those people you are, but I think God has a name for all of us in this room. Right, Christian or not, that's why I love it. Christian or not Christian, repent and believe is always the slogan. Man, today, wandering, failing, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Not a Christian enemy of God, become a friend of God by repenting of sin and turning to him as your king. Whether through his weeping or his warning, he knows how to address your heart. But let's not wait. Like last week he said, there's a season of opportunity. And it could just be today. I know we never want to hear that, but we don't know. You know one of the things that just complex was the most com- confusing thing when I did high school and college ministry was unilaterally the mindset is know when I am 30, know when I am 40, know when I am, okay, then I'll pursue Jesus, then I'll take Jesus, then I'll respond to his call. What makes you think you have God at your bidding? What makes you think the Holy Spirit is at your obligation? This may be the only time he's even opening up your soul for correction, It's maybe the only time he is loving and kind enough to even call you and woo you to himself through his love or his warning and justice. Let's ask him to give us hearts to respond. God, we realize that your truth exposes us like a mirror. And God, we don't want to walk in futility. We don't want to walk in lies. We don't want to walk in delusion. We want to see the truth for what it is. We need your help for this, God. We don't want to hear Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Jesus himself, Paul, weeping and pleading over the people to see with clear eyes, who you are. God, we need your help to do that. Would you open our eyes to that today? God, would you show us the places in our life where we need to hand over keys, where we need to hand over wallets, where we need to hand over submission, where we need to hand over decisions, where we need to hand over who knows what. God, help us to believe that you, king of all of that, is where life is found. God, we know that the enemy, your adversary, knows the word better than anyone and uses it to pervert the minds of unbelievers and believers. God, would you protect our minds even now from deception? Protect our minds even now from putting off what we shouldn't put off. To confess right now where we need to confess and not put it off. To make the hard decisions where we need to make hard decisions. God, I pray that some in this room would see your unrelenting, divine, aggressive love that is violent for your people, that went to a cross and broke his body and shed his blood and rose again so that those with the deepest of secret shame and sin could be brought into newness of life and reconciliation with God. God, would you get at the hearts of those who are in glad rebellion glad opposition, would you warn them? Would your justice stand in front of them? Wouldn't that bring them to a place of repentance and faith? Would you protect us from trotting on your glory, trotting on your holiness, treating you as if it's a business venture, something we can just have our way with? God, would you correct us where we need correction? And God, as we observe this supper, as we're we're nourished by the beautiful news that you broke your body and shed your blood to reconcile man with God, would that be good news to us today? Would it be comforting to us today? Would it be motivating for us today? Would it be liberating for us today? Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.